Well, I want you to take your Bibles, please, and meet me together in the book of Esther today. And we're going to go to chapter number one, Esther chapter one. Um, if you're not sure where the book of Esther is, and I say this every week because so many people are coming to faith in Jesus, uh, last Sunday, eight people were saved on Sunday at Brookstone Church. And so many, many people are coming to faith and they're new to their Bible. And so this is the reason I often give you instructions on where to find uh, the books of the Bible. And so go to the book of Psalms. It's kind of the anchor. It's the big book, 150 chapters right in the middle of your Bible. And then if you'll just start forward toward the front, you'll go through the book of Job, or someone once said the book of Job. It is not the book of Job, it's the book of Job. You'll go through the book of Job, and then you'll be in Esther. And meet me in Esther chapter number one, if you will. While you're finding your place there, let me welcome you into the second of seven uh, weeks where for seven Sundays we are thinking together on this idea of seven strong overcoming high tension. I explained to you uh, a couple of weeks ago as I was introducing this thought to you that we were going to spend seven Sundays uh, studying three books of the Bible, that we were going to study Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And that in those three books of the Bible, we were going to go to school on five different people, five lives in those three books. And that from those five people, we would learn about seven qualities or character traits that we need to possess in our lives if we are to bear up under the load of life. If we're going to be able to bear up under the pressure and the tensions and the stresses of life and not collapse under the burdens that life will bring, then we need to have these seven qualities present within us. Last week, we began in the book of Ezra, and we were considering the life of Zerubbabel. Now, some of you will remember that Zerubbabel was a descendant of King David. He was the grandson of King Jehoiakim, a prince in Judah. Although Judah, Israel was in captivity, he was a prince among his people, and he was named a governor by Cyrus, who was Cyrus the Great the great Persian king. It was Cyrus, you'll remember from last week, who made this miraculous decree that God wanted him to build the temple, or in truth, rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem. Do you remember that really miraculous verse from Ezra chapter 1, verse 1? We read it last Sunday where the Bible says um, that the word of the Lord by the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled. This is what Cyrus said. The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of this world, and he has called me to build a house for him at Jerusalem. Who among you would go up and build the house of God? Well, it was Zerubbabel that was tapped as the leader that would take a group of about 50,000 refugees, Jewish men and women, from the country of Babylon, the land of, of the Persian Empire, and take them back up to their homeland in Jerusalem and to begin the work of rebuilding the temple. It took them more than 20 years, really 20 grueling years to get that work done. But they completed it, and the temple of God was rebuilt. Last week we were learning that like Zerubbabel, we need endurance. 
That when we go through life, we face difficulties and obstacles and hardships and we need to press on in the encouragement of God's word and press on in the power of the Holy Spirit in the same kind of endurance that Zerubbabel uh, demonstrated. So Zerubbabel comes uh, along with 50,000 and they begin to rebuild the temple. Later, Ezra would come as well, the author of the book of Ezra. Uh, Nehemiah would come around the same time that Ezra would. And these three men returning to Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, are indicative of so many Jewish people in that day who wanted to return back to Jerusalem. They wanted to live in their homeland. They were going home by the thousands. You'll remember that they had been in captivity for 70 years. And after 70 years, they're allowed to return. And so many of them seize the opportunity and they do that very thing. They return. I mean, imagine what that would have been like. They're, they load up in caravans on camels and, and uh, they gather their families, their wives and their children, and they set out from places in Africa or places in India or places uh, in modern-day Iraq and Iran, and they're making this long and dangerous and arduous journey through the desert and over the mountains, but they, they just wanted to live at home in the city of God. And so it was worth the risk to them to go there. And by the, by the thousands, they came home. But not everybody went back to Jerusalem. Not every Jewish person in the Persian Empire, not every person after 70 years of captivity made their way back to Jerusalem. In fact, the people that we're going to learn about today in the book of Esther, two people specifically, Esther and Mordecai, never returned. Now, maybe they had the opportunity to return and they chose not to. Maybe in their particular case, they were never given the opportunity to return. I don't know which of those two things is true. But in either case, both Esther and Mordecai spent their entire lives living in the Persian capital of Susa or Shushan, it was the capital of that vast Persian empire. And everything that we're going to read today in the book of Esther takes place in Persia about 60 to 80 years, well, let's say 50 years after the construction of the temple that we learned about last week. So they could have gone. Jerusalem had been, in rehabit- had been re-inhabited, but for whatever reason, they did not return. Now, by the way, did you know that the book of Esther has been called the most secular book of the Bible? Isn't that interesting? The most secular book of the Bible. And the reason it's called the most secular book of the Bible is because in all of the, of the pages of the book of Esther, there is not one mention of God. His name is not there. There's no reference to God at all in this book. Not only is there no reference to God by name, there's also no reference to the city of God. Jerusalem isn't mentioned in the book of Esther. The temple, which had been standing when these events occurred, again, about 50 years, that temple is not mentioned anywhere in the book. 
This is a book about Jewish people living in the Persian Empire, and yet there's no mention of the law of God that should have directed their lives living in that empire. There's no mention of the law at all. And in fact, there's not even any implication that they really lived by the law very much. You simply have two Jewish people in this passage, in this book, who are living absent any reference to God that's obvious in the text in this pagan Persian empire. And as a result of that absence of God in the text, there have been plenty of people through the ages who have rejected this book. They've said it has no value. It doesn't talk about God. It has no value. In fact, it's interesting. Um, many of you are familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls. If I say Dead Sea Scrolls, do you know what I'm talking about? Go like this if you do. Most of you know the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century. Uh, this group of scrolls, hundreds of them, that were discovered along the shores of the Dead Sea. That's the name Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, in a place called Qumran in Israel. And after years of excavating the caves and, and decades of, of uh, piecing through the fragments, here's what the scholars and the archaeologists discovered. That every book in the Old Testament is represented among the scrolls and the fragments found at Qumran. Every book in the Bible is there except the book of Esther. It's not there. And the reason is because it doesn't mention God and presumably the, the religious sect of the Essenes who, who lived in Qumran rejected this book because they saw it as too secular. And so while the Essenes and many others have, have shunned the book, the Holy Spirit included the book of Esther in the Bible. Amen? And he included it here for us to teach us. That even though God's name is not mentioned, we can clearly see his hand at work and we can clearly see his care over our lives when we're living in difficult days. And, and even perhaps in times when we're not particularly living for him, he is still active and present in our lives. We're going to read in chapter number two, but let me introduce you in uh, chapter one, verse one, to the king of Persia at this time. It's no longer Cyrus. He has now died. And so the king, according to Esther chapter one, verse one, is a man by the name of Ahasuerus. He's also known as Xerxes. Look at chapter one, verse one. It came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. King Ahasuerus is the ruler of the world, essentially, the mightiest empire in the world. He rules over this, in, this, this massive empire that stretches from Africa through the Middle East to the Eastern world into India. And there are some things about Ahasuerus that you learn in chapter 1 that are worth noting. First of all, you learn that Ahasuerus was a man who liked his wine. He loved to throw extravagant parties where the wine was flowing freely. Not only did he love his wine, he loved to sip his wine from golden chalices. He, he would bring out the mo what we might call the most expensive china. It wasn't china, it was the gold vessels. And they would drink wine from these gold vessels. 
He had a taste for wine and he had a taste for parties. In fact, chapter number one tells us in verses number three and four that he once threw a party that lasted a long time. Before you read the verse, how, how long do you think the party lasted? Six days maybe? That's a long party. How about six weeks? Try six months. That's how long the party lasted. He threw a banquet for his princes from all 127 provinces. He brought them all into Susa, the capital. He launched a banquet and six months later, they're still having a party. And when that six-month party ended, he thought, well, just let's cap this party off with a week-long party. He throws a seven-day party. And chapter 1 tells us in verse number 11 that on the last day of the second party, when he was drunk, he did a stupid thing. Hey, can I share something with you? You know what you do when you're drunk? You do stupid things. And this is the reason that God warns us so mightily throughout the scriptures that we not be abusers of alcohol. He did something stupid in his drunken stupor. The Bible tells us in chapter 1, verse number 11, that he called for his bride, Vashti the queen, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with her royal crown on and to show the people and the princes her beauty. For she was beautiful or fair to look upon. Now let's be honest. We all know what's going on here. This is not the king's desire and his drunkenness to bring his wife out and say in a respectful and an honoring way to say to her, isn't my wife beautiful? What a, what a wonderful queen we have. No, 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 no. This is a drunken man's demand for his wife to parade around in front of all of his drunken friends. And she refuses to her credit. She refused to do it. She wouldn't come out and she wouldn't do it. And because she wouldn't do it, he was angry and he deposed her from the throne and he banished her from the kingdom. And in all likelihood, she was executed for her defiance of the king. So ends Vashti's life. The party is over. The crowds go home. And the king begins to think about what he's done. And this is where we arrive in chapter 2 and verse 1. Follow along as I read. Esther chapter 2 verse 1. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti, thought about her. He considered what had happened and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Simply put, he missed her. And he regretted what he had done by all accounts. It seems that he regretted what he had done. He, he misses the fact that she's no longer with him. He's lonely. And so his servants have an idea. Verse number two. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all of the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather together all of the beautiful young virgins unto Susa the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of uh, Haggai, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women. And let their things for purification be given to them. And let the maiden which pleases the king, uh, the, pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. 
It's hard for us to imagine such a thing as this. To sanitize this text, what we have typically done is we've turned this into a beauty contest where contestants would apply and come to join a beauty contest for the queen or to become the queen. It's not what this is at all. In fact, this entire scene reeks of Jeffrey Epstein. This reeks of human trafficking. Because the king was lonely, the servants of the king had the idea, why don't you send out officers into your 127 regions from Ethiopia to uh, India, and why don't you gather all the beautiful young virgins, bring them here to the palace. These beautiful young women were not offered a chance, they were gathered. And the word gathered means to be grasped by the hands and collected. We would say arrested. They were brought, I'm certain many of them against their will, they were brought into the capital of this Persian empire, into this place to prepare themselves to meet the king. We're talking about many, many hundreds of young women, probably thousands of them, and let's be honest, these were not really young women at all. These were girls. These were teenagers. They're brought, and for 12 months, the text says, they were prepared to meet the king. Six months they spent with their skin being anointed with oil, soften and beautify and bronze the skin. For six months beyond that, they were anointed daily in baths of perfume. They were prepared to present themselves to this king, King Ahasuerus. And one of the girls that was taken in this number was Esther. Keep reading, verse 5. Now in Shushan, or Susa, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. He was the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jehoiakim, king of Judah, when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried them away. And he brought up Hadassah. Let me encourage you to underline or circle that name, Hadassah. That's Esther's real name. That's her Hebrew name, her beautiful Jewish name, which means beauty and strength. She was brought and given this name, Esther, pagan name. He brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. She's his cousin, for, for she, Esther, had neither father nor mother, And the maiden was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took her for his own daughter. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Susa the palace, to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house, to the custody of Haggai, the keeper of the women. And the maiden, Esther, pleased Haggai, And she obtained kindness from him, and he speedily gave her the things for purification, which things belonged to her, and he gave her seven servant girls, seven maidens, which were right to be given to her out of the king's house, 
And he preferred her and her maidens unto the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not shown her people nor her kindred, that is that she had not revealed that she was Jewish. She had not shown her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. By the way, it's a beautiful verse in verse 11. We'll talk about it next week because we're going to learn about Mordecai next Sunday. But it's a beautiful verse where Mordecai, having adopted Esther as his own daughter and raised her, he's so concerned for her well-being. When she's swept up in this dragnet of, of girls being taken into the palace, every day he walks as close as he can get. He's looking out for her. Even though this is out of his control, he's trying to tend to her well-being as best he can. Verse number 12, now when every maid's turn was come to go into King Ahasuerus, after that she had been 12 months according to the manner of women, for so were the days of their purification accomplished, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with sweet perfumes, and with other things for the purifying of the women. Then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given to her, to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. In the evening she would go into the king's palace, and the next morning she would return not to the house of the virgins, not to the first house she had been in, but to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shasgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her and that he would call her by name. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who, was taken for, uh, who, was taken, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, and the keeper of the women had appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all women. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and he made her queen instead of Vashti. Now usually, usually when you read the story of Esther, what happens at this point is that everybody stops and goes, oh, She's queen. She won the beauty contest. She has moved from rags to riches, from the peasant's house to the palace, and we celebrate the fact that she has become the queen. That's not what I want to talk about today. Because this text emphasizes, we'll talk about her as queen in a couple of weeks, but this text emphasizes something that you should never miss about Esther's experience. I want you to write it down. It, it is that the text makes it clear that Esther suffered great hardship in her life. And she did. We've already talked about the fact that she was born in exile. Esther hadn't been born when Jerusalem fell to Nebuchadnezzar and the city was destroyed and the people were taken down to Babylon. She hadn't been born yet. She was born as a refugee living in exile in, in Babylon, in Persia. She had never known a day of freedom in her life 
Her destiny was not in her hands. She, she didn't have the ability to go anywhere she wanted at any time. She lived under the, under the reign of the king of Persia and all of his officers and governors that ruled in these 127 provinces. She knew that she was Jewish. She knew who her father and her mother were. She understood she was of the tribe of Benjamin. She was a daughter of Almighty God, but she lived every day of her life under the heavy hand of Persian rule. She'd never experienced freedom. And every day of her life, she had been a lesser than. Not a Persian, but a Jew. She was born in exile. Secondly, she lost both of her parents at an early age. This is what verse number seven tells us, that her mother and her father had both died and she was so young when they both died that Mordecai, her cousin, took her and raised her from a child, maybe even from an infant, but certainly from the time that she was an early, uh, a young girl. She lost both of her parents. It was tragic. And then thirdly, and I mentioned this a few minutes ago, she suffered greatly in that she was forced into a harem as a teenager. This is what chapter 2, verses 8 and verse number 14 make clear. Look at verse number 14, still in chapter 2. In the evening, these women, these virgins who had been rounded up from throughout the entire empire, when their turn came, they went to the palace. They were taken to the palace from the house of the virgins to the king's bedroom. And verse 14 says, the next morning, they didn't go back to the house of the virgins. They went to the house of the concubines. Because when morning came, they were no longer virgin girls. I mean, there's a word for that. It's rape. And these women taken to the house of the concubines would have no hope for the rest of their days of having any kind of life of their own. They would never have a husband, never. They could not marry. They were the property of the king. They would never raise their own family, have their own daughters that they would raise up. These women were the chattel, the property of the king for the rest of their lives, for his own pleasure at his own time and choosing. Unless they were chosen to be the queen. And Esther was one of those taken into this situation. She endured great suffering. Now, let's apply it. While nobody in the room has ever experienced exactly what Esther did, all of us have suffered to some degree like Esther suffered. Every person, all of us endure some degree of suffering in our lives. Like Esther, suffering difficult living circumstances, born in exile, never knowing freedom. In the same way, many people in our own experience suffer in our living circumstances. Our living situation may not be ideal. Now certainly all over the world there are people who live in very difficult, in horrific living conditions. For most of us, that's not the issue. Some people, even in America, of course, live in great poverty, and, and our situation is difficult to say the least. But maybe it's not so much where you live as it is uh, the relationships in your life and the dysfunction in your family and the hardships that come into your life because of your living circumstances. We all suffer 
in various ways. Like Esther, she lost her her parents when she was very young. We have endured, many of us have, the loss of loved ones in an untimely fashion. Some of you know the grief. I can't even imagine. But you could tell the story of the grief of burying your child. And you know what that is, that, that unthinkable thing that you would have to bury your son or your daughter and the, the hardship and the grief that comes with that. We bury our parents. And while that seems a natural progression of life, even if they live to a ripe old age, it's never easy. But sometimes we've buried our parents far too young, far sooner than we should have. We, we suffer at the grave like Esther did. And some people suffer because of a sexual history that's painful. I'm absolutely certain that there are some who are here today who live with deep scars and wounds because of sexual abuse that occurred in your life. Maybe like Esther, a rape that occurred in your life or some sort of sexual oppression or abuse that happened. And it's real and it It's suffering and it brings pain. And maybe it wasn't abuse. Maybe it was just poor sexual choices and the consequences that come with those. So we all suffer. And while we may not suffer exactly like Esther suffered, her response to her suffering is very instructive for all of us. So I want you to jot this down. What you learn from Esther's experience and what you can emulate in Esther's life is that Esther demonstrated great grace. Even though she suffered in her life, she demonstrated great grace throughout her life. You know, someone has said that that hardship, difficulty, will either make you bitter or it will make you better. One of the two. Hardship will make you bitter or it will make you better. And Esther allowed the hardships in her life to make her better. I love that Esther is so poised and it's obvious that she allowed the difficulties in her life to to give her poise rather than poison. So many people allow the difficulty to poison their soul and poison their outlook, and yet she just gained poise because of it. Her hardships allowed her, they taught her, they shaped her to live a life filled with grace. And it's obvious throughout the book of Esther that the gracious spirit that she possessed touched every single person who came into contact with her. Every person that she met was touched by her gracious spirit. By the way, the word gracious means to reflect the character of God because God is gracious, right? God is kind and generous and gracious to us. And when we live with a gracious spirit, we're simply reflecting the grace that we've received. It means to be kind to others and to seek the benefit of others. This is what Esther did. The text tells us that she was gracious toward Mordecai. Chapter 2, verse number 10 tells us that she had not revealed her Jewishness to anybody because Mordecai instructed her not to. She was gracious in receiving his instruction and following his advice. And even when she became the queen, look at chapter 2, verse 20. Esther had not yet shown her kindred, that is, that she didn't let anybody know she was Jewish because Mordecai had told her not to. Verse 20 says, for she did the commandment of Mordecai even like she did when she was being brought up by him. That's an amazing verse. 
She's the queen in verse 20. And yet even when she becomes the queen, she's still gracious and respectful toward Mordecai. There's a good lesson in that for you young people who are growing up into young adulthood. When you turn 18, or I've heard students say, oh man, I turn 18, I'm out of here, I'll never listen to my parents again. If you want to have a gracious spirit, even when you're older, learn to follow their advice and listen to their heart. They weren't stupid when you were 12, and they're not now either. I've maxed out on my use of stupid in a sermon. My wife's going to fuss at me if I say it one more time. No, but she was gracious to Mordecai. And she was also gracious to Haggai, this keeper of the women whom we know almost nothing about. We know he was a eunuch. We know he was responsible for the care and the protection and the preparation of these women. She was so kind to him. And he obviously is touched by her gracious spirit. He prefers her, verse number nine says, above all the other women. And she was gracious to King Ahasuerus. Look at verse number 17. When Ahasuerus loves her more than all the other women, and she found grace and favor in his sight. And that had so much to do with the fact that he was taken by the simplicity with which she approached him. By the way, all these virgins who were collected and they were each spending a night with the king in hopes they're going to become queen because they know if they're not named queen, they're going to be a concubine for the rest of their life. This is a competition. I mean, they didn't sign up for it, but once they're in it, they, they want the best outcome, right? Now, I've never watched the show The Bachelor, ever. But if there could be a modern equivalent, it would seem to me, of something similar to what's going on in the book of Esther, it is this idea of all of these different women fighting for and clamoring for the attention of one man. That's exactly what's happening in the book of Esther. So every night when one of the virgins was taken to the palace, she got to choose anything she wanted. She could, she could take anything with her that she wanted to. Now, I don't, that probably meant maybe one said, I want my hair fixed in this particular way. One wanted the finest jewelry. Another one took a tambourine, you know, to do it. Maybe one played a ukulele. I don't know what they did, but they had all these opportunities. You know, I, gotta, I can take anything I want. Well, it, it comes Esther's turn. And they say, what do you want to take? And she said, I, I don't want to take anything. Well, I mean, what do I have to take? And they said, well, you don't have to take anything. And so just with the beauty of who she is and the graciousness of her spirit, she appears before the king. And he's taken, he's smitten with this gracious spirit that she has. Now, she, she continues to have a gracious spirit toward him. Let me show you chapter 7 really quickly. Uh, turn over to Esther chapter number 7 where she's now the queen, has been the queen for several years years. And verse number one introduces a person that I haven't mentioned yet. His name is Haman. Many of you know the story of Haman. We'll talk about him next week in detail. But Haman is in verse one of chapter seven. So the king and Haman came to the banquet with Esther, the queen. Now, if you don't know anything about Haman, look at chapter seven, verse six. You'll see his name again with a descriptor. He's called wicked Haman. And he was. He was wicked. By the time you get to chapter 7, verse 4, Haman has crafted a plan where every Jewish man, woman, and child in the entire empire is going to be murdered. And so it's going to be a holocaust and the entire nation is going to be slaughtered. And here's a place where you see in chapter 7 the gracious spirit of Esther. If y'all are listening, say amen. 
When you get to chapter 7, verse 3, she still has not revealed to the king that she's a Jew. And now the plot of Haman is going to have every Jew murdered. Well, what would most of us have done? We would have thought, well, I'm glad I didn't tell him I was a Jew. Because I'm safe. We would have tried to keep our Jewishness all the more secret so we could survive Haman's plot to kill all the Jews. But did she do that? No. In chapter 7, she goes in before the king so that she can bring the benefit, seek the blessing and the rescue of her people, and she identifies with her people. I am a Jewish woman, she says, in that gracious spirit toward her people. She identifies herself with them. And even when the pressure is on, I mean, it's the, her life is on the line, she still relates to the king with such a gracious spirit. Verse number three, I'm in chapter seven, verse three. She says, if I have found favor in thy sight, O king, if it please the king, let my life be given at my petition and my people at my request. In verse four, she says, if we were gonna be sold into slavery, I wouldn't even bother you with it. It's just that we're gonna be murdered, but if, if we were gonna be slaves, I wouldn't, have even, I wouldn't have even bothered the king. Now, it's an amazing statement because it says something about the empire and the culture and how that the enslavement of an entire nation of people would have been too little a thing to bother the king with. But it also reveals her gracious spirit. Esther has such a heart of gracious a gracious spirit toward everybody around her and for the benefit of others. And what a model she is to us. In fact, you know, the Bible says in Proverbs 11 and verse 16, a gracious woman gets honor. And man, she did. What a gracious woman she was. And she has gotten such honor. If you were to be in Jerusalem today and stop any Jewish woman, secular, religious, Orthodox, unorthodox, doesn't matter. Any Jewish woman and say to her, tell me who's the greatest heroine in Israel's history. Without thinking, every one of them would say Esther or Hadassah, they would say. Every single one of them would. We don't even have to think about it. Because she is the great honored heroine of her people. She's a great model for all of us. And so here's my question for you. I haven't told you much about Haman. We'll get into his story next week. But let me just tell you that Haman is self-absorbed. He's self-seeking. He's arrogant. He's scheming. He's conniving. And he's, and he's harsh and hateful. That's Haman. Wicked Haman. And then you have gracious Esther. Now in chapter 7, both Esther and Haman are under the pressure. The stress is on both of them. And in the same way, we get under stress. And here's my question. If y'all ready for the question, shout amen. amen. Listen, when the pressure is on, when the stress is real, when the burdens are heavy and the days are long, who are you more like? Gracious Esther or wicked, harsh Haman? Who do you most resemble? Haman or Esther? And so, can I just confess to you that there have been too many days throughout the history of Jim Dykes when the pressure was on when I shifted toward Haman and became harsh and self-protecting and self-serving instead of shifting toward Esther and becoming gracious and looking to the benefit of others. And so Esther's a great model for us. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking, because I know guys, because I am one. Some of you guys are thinking, come on, Pastor. 
you can't tell me a woman is, a, is the model for me. I'm a, I mean, I appreciate Esther and all, but that's feminine. Give me a man to be a model for. I, I, give me a man to be my model. I want to model myself after a man. I'm so glad you asked. Look at John 1 and verse 14. It's on the screen. Listen to this. The Bible says, And the Word became flesh. This is Jesus dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. There you go. So Esther was like Jesus. So just be like one of them and you'll be doing okay. Now, in fact, you don't have to turn. Listen to Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 44. Jesus speaking, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, the words curse, hate, persecute, use, are all words that bring the squeeze in life. They're all words that bring the pressure. And he says, when the pressure is on, Jesus says, here's what you do. You love and you bless and you do good and you pray. And you say, why should I love and bless and do good and pray when people are being unfair to me and life is hard? Verse 45 tells us, Matthew 5, 45, go read it later. Here's what he says. So that you may be the children of your father, in heaven. In other words, so you'll look like your father. So you'll act like your savior. You and I need to have a gracious spirit. Let me give you a prayer to pray as we're closing. Would you leave here today asking the Lord this, uh, this prayer? Lord, please give me a gracious spirit. Especially when the pressure's on. Especially when the burdens are heavy. Give me a gracious spirit like Esther like Jesus, not like Haman. That would look like a spirit of humility to defer to others. That's what Esther did. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that we should esteem others higher than ourselves. A gracious spirit would be a spirit of gentleness when others are being harsh. So not our natural response. Our natural response is you hit me, I'm going to hit you back harder. You yell at me, I'm going to yell at you louder. You, you, you bow up against me, I'll bow up against you more firmly. That's, that's our natural response. But do you know the Proverbs 15, I think, verse 1 says that a soft answer turns away wrath. That's what I need. And then number three, it would be a spirit of kindness in a world filled with hate. Man, we're living in a world filled with hate, aren't we? There's so much hate in the world, so much hate talk in the world. And the world doesn't need to see Christians whose verbiage and language and jargon is matching their own. What they need is to see Christians who will stand for truth with a gracious spirit. Because that will be to the glory of God. So when life is hard and times are tough, godly people, people like Esther, demonstrate a spirit of grace because that's what we've received from God and we want to give that to other people.